Okay, uh, before we start, a correction from the homework. Uh, if you've downloaded the homework before today, then your copy has an error on it. Uh, on the second page, questions three and four asked you to derive some expressions and there was a, uh, an equation number given. That was the equation number from the textbook the last time I taught the course, which is not our textbook. So uh, thanks to Michael for pointing that out. I've updated it. You can now refer to figure 5.1-1 for the, uh, there's no equation given in the text, but there's a, a figure that represents what I'm asking you to show. I've updated the homework that's online, so if you are downloading it any point after now, um, you'll have the correct version. Also, I've been asked to uh, promote our undergraduate optics lab. Certainly I'll mention that uh, we have an undergraduate optics lab. There's some vacancy in it, which is why I've been asked to promote this. Um, although I noticed it's actually meeting now. So. <laughs> I, I, if anybody really wants to go, I do podcast the class. I don't have a problem with you skipping this to go to that. And uh, I emailed Dr. Pugina to see if all the labs go to the end of the scheduled time or if some of them end early. But uh, I put up the slide so at least I can tell him that I did promote it. And Today we're going to talk more about the electromagnetic theory of light, that means Maxwell's equations. Really what we're doing is we're setting the groundwork for the work we're going to do later in the semester where we do uh, boundary conditions in waveguides, where we do propagation through anisotropic crystals. Um, all of these things rely on some values that we can compute from Maxwell's equations. We'll do that sort of mathematical drudgery today so that later we don't have to do it. So today's lecture may seem, it seems to me, to be a little bit piecemeal. There's a whole bunch of things that I kind of want to derive that don't really tie together yet. They'll tie together later. So um, that's my disclaimer. Okay, so here are the four things we're going to talk about. Maxwell's equations. We'll just go over those one by one. Um, we'll compare Maxwell's equations that we used last time, which were for free space or for an isotropic material, to Maxwell's equations in matter. Um, we'll use those to derive the boundary conditions. If you were paying attention to the homework I showed earlier, basically you'd be doing the homework problem. Um, and then we'll introduce the concept of the pointing vector. And we will talk about how we can use phasers compute time average quantities. It turns out uh, the time average quantity of the pointing vector is the irradiance of an electromagnetic field. It's a very important parameter. It tells us how intense our light is. And finally, we will use the uh, wave equations, the wave equation in anisotropic materials. So um, starting with Maxwell's equations in matter, we'll redrive the wave equation and we'll see it's uh, the useful form of it is a little different than what we had last time. Okay, so Maxwell's equations in matter are a little different. Um, I've written them in terms of 
the electric displacement and the magnetic, uh, the magnetic field that account for the contributions of the matter. Right, so um, E and H are the electric and magnetic fields that would be present in free space. And then if you add matter, um, matter can be polarized by the electric field and it can have some magnetism induced in it and that contributes to the overall net electric field and net magnetic field that we call the electric displacement and the magnetic field. Okay, so when we write Maxwell's equations in this form, there's no epsilons or mu's appearing because those are all folded in to the d's and the b's. Okay, so as a reminder, um, this is going to be on the next slide, but d is uh, epsilon e and b is mu h. Do I have this backwards? Oh, yeah, someone mentioned that. Uh, Gauss's law for, where do I have that? That's for electricity, that's for magnetism. So that would be one of those errors that I definitely hope you point out so I don't make a fool of myself the third time I teach the course using the same set of notes, uh, but wouldn't get extra credit. Okay, so let's look at the laws one by one. Uh, we'll start with Faraday's law. That's the curl of the electric field equals minus the time rate of flux, of magnetic flux. Um, so what that means is changing magnetic fields produce circulating electric fields. Ampere's law is sort of the magnetic equivalent of this. Uh, if we neglect this J term on the right side, it has the same form. Just the magnetic and electric fields are, are swapped. And it says that the curl of the magnetic field, and magnetic field lines we know only close on themselves. So they, they have curl, they don't have divergence. So basically the magnetic field itself um, comes from either a time rate of change of the electric displacement, that could either be the electric field changing or the dipoles in the matter moving around. Okay, both of those things can contribute to the uh, electric displacement vector D. And it's probably worth pointing out that this electric displacement vector can be written as epsilon e. Um, it can also be written as um, e plus epsilon naught e plus a polarization. Okay, so this, of course, is just the normal electric field. This is the effect of matter. It's the net dipole moment per unit volume for the material. 
call it the polarization, but it's not polarization in the sense of optical polarization. It's a polarization of matter, and it would look like the uh, it would have a form like this. It's proportional to the dipole moment induced in the material by the electric field. Okay, so if you have a charge that's displaced from its equilibrium position, you have a dipole moment. And then N would be the number of charges per unit volume. Okay, so if either the electric field is changing or the dipoles are moving around, both of those things can produce a magnetic field. And dipoles moving around is a current moving around. So you can either think of it as dipoles oscillating or a free current moving, and that's what this J is. So J is a current density. For everything we're going to do in this class, J is equal to zero. Okay, we're not going to deal with materials that have free charges. Therefore, we don't have materials that have free current. I should mention that the effect of free charges in a material is basically to absorb light. And so if we're dealing with what we traditionally consider optical materials that are transparent, then we would expect there not to be free charges. Okay, uh, the Gauss's laws are where things kind of get interesting and become relevant for this class. Um, so Gauss's law in matter looks like the divergence of the um, electric displacement vector equals rho, the charge density. Now, at first glance, this appears to just say that charges are the source of electric fields. You have a charge, you have some divergence or convergence, depending on the sign, of the electric displacement. And if you just said, well, the electric displacement is proportional to the electric field, what that means is field lines flow out or flow into charges. Okay, so here's that relationship I wrote on the board. Um, again, for all cases in our class, we're not going to have free charges. So rho is equal to zero. So at this point, this may not seem like a very interesting equation. The divergence is zero. But when we look at this, the relationship between the electric field and the electric displacement, it's a relationship between two vectors. Right? So in, in general, the electric field is a three-dimensional vector. The electric displacement is three-dimensional. Epsilon, in the most general sense, is a quantity that operates on a three-dimensional vector and produces a three-dimensional vector. Anybody have their math, math hat on and recall what, what a quantity that takes a vector and manipulates it and produces another vector is called? Yeah, so it's a tensor. So epsilon is a 3 by 3 tensor. Or at least in general, it can be a 3 by 3 tensor. Now, if it turns out that it's 
diagonal and all the elements are identical, then we would normally just call that a scalar, right? Because it, it would not change the, the uh, direction of the vector, it would just change its length, and we call it a scalar. Um, and in an isotropic material, that's the case. But it doesn't need to be the case. Um, that's an overly specific case. And so if we allow epsilon to be a 3 by 3 tensor, that means that if it's, if it's not the identity tensor uh, times a scalar, then there must be some sort of um, rotation going from E to D. There must be something more than a, a scale factor change between those things. And that's going to be the case in an anisotropic material. So an isotropic material, uh, one that is the same in all directions, if there's no orientation dependence in the material, then there can't be any rotation of the electric field by the material. Right? Because there's no sort of, just by symmetry, there's no reason it should rotate it one way versus the other way. However, in an anisotropic material, think a crystal that has regular structure, and that structure may differ in the different directions, then there is a natural symmetry axis. There are planes and there are axes that define the crystal. And so you can imagine there being a preferred direction of rotation, um, or at least there's a coordinate system that you can consider rotation around. So um, in anisotropic materials, we'll have to consider epsilon as a full three by three tensor, and in certain cases we'll see that it can, uh, it can simplify to, to a scalar, in other cases it can't. Okay, further, epsilon may not be constant. It may not be constant in time, because things like external fields can affect it. Okay, so we'll have devices like modulators where we apply an AC voltage a capacitor. We have a crystal inside the capacitor. And as we apply an AC voltage, we drive an AC electric field through that capacitor. That may change the optical properties of the material. If that happens, what it's doing is it's changing epsilon. So epsilon may not be constant in time. The fact that it's a 3 by 3 tensor basically means it's not constant in direction. And it may be a function of the applied optical field as well. Okay, so if it can be changed by applying an external electric field, then it should be able to be changed by the electric field of the light going through it as well. So if that's the case, starting with D equals E, D equals epsilon E, if epsilon is itself a function of the applied electric field, let me write it in the most general sense. Um, if we expand this, uh, it's a function of the electric field, we can expand it as a Taylor series expansion. And I'm going to 
call this, I was going to call it epsilon sub zero, but that has a different meaning. So it has the value at zero field, right? plus it has the uh, first order term plus second order term plus all the higher order terms. We can give these terms names. Later on, we'll see that we use a uh, letter R to denote this term. I'm just going to call it for now the nonlinear part of epsilon. Call this the linear part plus the nonlinear part, and typically we find that the higher order terms are negligible. So let's just consider the first two terms. If that's the case, I can write d equals the linear part of epsilon times the electric field plus the additional or the change in epsilon due to the applied electric field times the electric field. And now what I have here is a term that goes to z squared. Right, that's the nonlinear term. This is a linear term in E. This is a nonlinear term in E. That's where the term nonlinear optics comes from. Nonlinear optics is what goes on in a material that has a value for the nonlinear uh, coefficient that's not 0. Yeah, I kind of left that out. Um, Remember, this is actually a tensor. So um, it turns out that this nonlinear term will be a 3 by 3 by 3 tensor when multiplied by a three-dimensional vector will give you a 3 by 3 tensor. We multiply by a three-dimensional vector to get a three-dimensional vector. So uh, we're going to go over that in great detail in later, later classes. For now, let me just wave my hands and call that something proportional to e squared. Okay, so epsilon is not just this static value. It's not something you just look up in a textbook. It's a single number. Um, that said, the changes in epsilon from its sort of static value tend to be small. They tend to be small, which is why you need very large fields in order for this term to be significant. That's why you need lasers and tightly confined uh, spots, which often means waveguides or... or uh, very high numerical aperture optics in order to get nonlinear effects. Um, so the static value of E of epsilon uh, can be measured from static measurements. It's a parallel plate capacitor. You can measure epsilon. Of course, that's interesting because that's one of the parameters that determines the speed of light. It's kind of neat. You can determine speed of light from a static measurement. That's one of the static measurements you need to do it. The other one, of course, is mu. So mu is related to magnetism. So if we look at Gauss's law for magnetism, we basically end up with the same 
results we had with Gauss's law for electricity. If we don't have um, any sources, which is the situation for our optical materials, then these laws are uh, completely analogous. So this just says there's no magnetic sources. Magnetic fields can only circulate. Um, if we relate the magnetic field in matter, B, to that in free space, H, it has the same type of relationship that we had between B and E. Right? So the quantity which, which relates B and H is mu. And in general, we can write the magnetic field in matter as being uh, in part due to the external magnetic field and then in addition to magnetism in the matter. Okay, now we're going to deal with only non-magnetic materials. So we're always going to have n equals 0. That means mu is always going to be equal to mu naught, which means the fact that mu, in theory, can be a 3 by 3 tensor, the fact that it could change, all that is irrelevant to us because we're not going to encounter any situations where it actually does. So for our purposes, mu is a static value. Um, it can be measured in a static sense by measuring the magnetic field introduced by a wire carrying current. That's the Biot-Savart law. So you can do these static measurements and uh, use the results of our uh, wave equation from last time where we derived the speed of light as 1 over the square root of mu epsilon. And do these static measurements to determine the speed of light. Okay. Um, one of the other things we can do with Maxwell's equations, besides driving the wave equation and dealing with how the wave propagates, is we can look at how a wave behaves at a boundary between two materials. So that is, we can look at the boundary conditions that are imposed by Maxwell's equations. So to do this, consider two piecewise homogeneous materials. On the left, we have material 1. On the right, we have material 2. There's this defined boundary between them. And imagine you have some wave coming incident on the surface. And you'll expect that some of it will transmit through, some will reflect. Then we can look at Maxwell's equations. And I've written them here in integral form. It'll be a little bit uh, more applicable to this geometry. And we can ask what they say about how the fields on the left side and the fields on the right side, uh, how they relate to each other. And that is the starting point for deriving Fresnel reflection coefficients uh, for fields reflected from and transmitted through an interface at an arbitrary angle for a given polarization. So we're not going to derive the Fresnel reflection coefficients. We are going to go through and um, derive the boundary conditions. We'll use those, I think chapter 8 in this textbook is guided waves. So waveguides are, think of uh, fiber optics for instance, where you have essentially rays reflecting off of interfaces. Okay. So we'll have to deal with, with this situation then. Okay, so let's take Maxwell's equations. Let's look at the first one and see what it tells us. So we have uh, Gauss's law of electricity. Since we're dealing with the integral form, we need to consider some finite volume and space that we can integrate over. And here it's going to be useful to make a little pillbox. It has a finite 
area, so a finite sized face on either side, but then an infinitesimal thickness. If we do that, then the volume of that fill box is zero, which is nice because anything that depends on volume is zero. Okay, so using Gauss's law, when we integrate over the entire surface area, this barrel has negligible contribution to the whole thing because it has a negligible thickness. So the integral over the entire surface is really just the integral over this left-hand surface plus the integral over the right-hand surface. And so if we assume that the fields are constant over this surface, which we could do by making that surface small enough, smaller than whatever scale our fields are varying over, then we can say that the integral over this surface is just the, um, so the integral of d dot dA is just the d field dotted with the area vector. And on the left side we have, we'll call it d1 and a1, on the right side we'll have d2 and a2. So this, there should be a parentheses here, times A. So our result of the integrations are on the left. Whatever the D field is, when we dot it with the area vector, which is, which is normal to the surface, then D dotted with A is what we'll just call the perpendicular component of D, times A. I neglected the A on this slide, I need to fix that. And on the right side, we have the same result. Whatever the field on the right side is, when we dot that with the area vector, uh, we just get the perpendicular component of D. So I'll call that D2, but because the area is pointing, the area vector is the direction, I'll call that minus. So this integral looks like the perpendicular component of D1 times A minus the perpendicular component of D2 times A. And that should equal the charge enclosed. And there's an error, or not so much an error, but a, an inconsistency in the notes where I write this as sigma A here without really explaining that was an accident. Um, so rho is the charge density, charge per unit volume. Um, sigma is the surface charge density. We have a surface, we usually refer to the charge that's on that surface having some number of coulombs per meter squared, some charge per unit area, we call that sigma. So if we're integrating over this volume, and that volume only contains the surface, we can just integrate the surface over the area, charge on the surface over the area. Okay, well there's no surface charge here, we're going to make three charges. So that says that perpendicular component of D1 has to equal the perpendicular component of D2. Okay, so that's our first boundary condition. The electric displacement vector, the perpendicular component relative to the surface has to be continuous across the interface. We can ask what about the uh, parallel component. 
And for that, we'll use uh, the next expression here. We've got the um, electric field integrated around a closed circuit. So we'll draw a circuit that encompasses this interface. And analogous to our pillbox, it has an infinitesimal thickness, but some finite length. So when we integrate the electric field around this, on this side, if let's say our electric field defined as positive and it's pointing up, the electric field dotted with this line integral is just going to be the parallel component of the electric field, the component that points along the line times the length of this line. And likewise on the other side, because I'm integrating around a closed path, if I'm going up here and going down here, the sign would change, but the uh, integral of E dot Vs along the right side is just going to be the parallel component of E times the length. And it's in the opposite direction, so it's minus. So again, this really should have parentheses and an L out in front. And on the right side, when I integrate the magnetic field over this area, that area is zero. So it, the right side is zero. And that says the parallel components of the electric field have to be equal. So remember, before we had the parallel components of the electric displacement were equal. Sorry, the perpendicular components of the electric displacement are equal. The parallel components of the electric field are equal. Okay, so we can go through and do uh, similar work with the last two expressions here to generate boundary conditions for the magnetic field. Well, it won't be if my values for epsilon are different. Right? If these are two different materials, then they're, if they have different optical properties, they'll have different values of epsilon. So if the perpendicular component of D is continuous, but epsilon is different, then E has to be different as well. Okay, so the same logic here. We take our pillbox and we integrate the magnetic field dotted with the area here on the left. And that gives us uh, the perpendicular component of B1 times the area minus the perpendicular component of B2 on the right times the area. And that's zero. So that tells us the perpendicular component of the magnetic fields have to be equal across the interface. And when we do the same argument for the circuit, we get that the parallel components of the H field have to be the same. Now, because all of our materials are going to have the same values of mu, um, if the 
H fields are continuous, the B fields are continuous, the B fields are continuous, the H fields are continuous. So our boundary conditions really say the magnetic field is continuous, both the parallel and perpendicular components. Magnetic field won't change going across the, uh, the boundary, but the electric field and the electric displacement will. Any questions for this point? So we're just going to sort of leave it there. All right, we'll come back to these, like I said, in I think chapter 8 is the first time we'll come back to them, but um, since we were dealing with Maxwell's equations, I wanted to, to go through this now. Um, let's talk about some of the parameters of electromagnetic waves that we care about. Well, one of the things that we use to measure how strong a wave is is its intensity or its irradiance. And that's related to the pointing vector. So the pointing vector measures the flow of electromagnetic energy. And it's defined as uh, E cross H. So S is our symbol for the pointing vector. And it's E cross H. So it's perpendicular to the electric field. It's perpendicular to the magnetic field. And if we think of electromagnetic waves as transverse waves, where the electric and magnetic fields are transverse to propagation, then E and H are both transverse to propagation. E and H are both transverse to S. So S is either the direction of propagation or it's opposite the direction of propagation. And it turns out it's in the direction of propagation. Okay, so the S vector tells us which direction the wave is propagating. And it also tells us how intense the wave is, how much power there is in it. Um, you may or may not recall from previous optics courses that the uh, power in a wave is proportional to the magnitude of its electric field squared. The magnetic field is proportional to the magnitude of the electric field. So E cross H is proportional to E squared, proportional to the, the power in the wave. And if we look at the units or the dimensions, of E and H. So in uh, MKS units, the electric field is measured in volts per meter. The H field is in amps per meter. So they're nice and uh, analogous in that sense. And if we multiply those together, we have volts times amps. Right, that's current, that's, uh, that's power. Current times voltage. Divided by meters squared. So it's a power per unit squared. Okay, so S, the pointing vector doesn't tell us how much power is in the wave, it tells us how much power per unit area. So how much power uh, is at a point, essentially. We can integrate that over the size of our detector to get the total amount of air, uh, power that we would detect. So we call that the irradiance, or at least the power per unit area we typically call the irradiance. It's not exactly the same thing as the pointing vector. Um, the reason is the Electric and magnetic fields are oscillating quantities. Right? They're in a wave, they're oscillating. They go through a max to a min uh, and pass through zero. And when they pass through zero, uh, when they pass through zero, the pointing vector is zero. Right? So if you think about what the pointing vector is, is it's, it's this vector pointing in the direction of propagation, telling you how intense the wave is, but it's getting long and then going to zero and then getting long and going to zero really fast at optical frequencies. 
Okay, so it's the time average of that that tells us how much power is actually deposited or, or passing through a, a given area in space. So when we say time average, uh, we have to ask, okay, well, how long do you have to average that to get, to get a time average? Um, when we're dealing with optics, time average usually means many cycles. Okay, so we're going to average it over some number of cycles. But of course, you can have a wave that is changing its intensity, right? If I turn off the lights, the intensity from the, from the lights would change. If I modulate uh, with the electro-optic modulator, the intensity of the, the beam going through would change. So we generally want to average over many cycles, but not too many, right? So many cycles, but as long as you stop your average before you get to the, say, the uh, time scale of your photodetector or whatever you're observing the light with, then you can think of the, uh, the irradiance as being the time average of the pointing vector. Okay, so how do we calculate time averages? Uh, I sort of uh, verbally described how we do it. Uh, mathematically, we would like to do it using phasers because we're going to treat circulating or oscillating fields as phasers, but we can't just multiply two phasers together. We can't take the phasor for E and the phasor for H and multiply them together um, because it's probably worth me writing this out. Um, call it x. If I have phasor x and phasor y, if I multiply those together, that's like um, the real part of x plus i times the imaginary part of x. Right, that's what phasor x is. Phasor y would be the same thing. for y, and if I multiply those two phasors together, and I do it explicitly now in terms of their real and imaginary parts, the quantity that I get has real parts that comes from the product of the real parts, and it also has a real part that comes from the product of the imaginary parts, right? So i times this times this, I have two i's, I get a minus imaginary x imaginary y. So that's the real part. And then sort of these cross terms between the real and imaginary parts will give me some uh, imaginary term. So I can have the real part of this times i times the imaginary part of that. The i comes out here. And if I multiply two phasors together, this is what I get. Those phasors are supposed to represent some real function. And if I take the real part of as I've done it, I get what I might expect. Um, this is the product of the two functions that are multiplying together. And that does not give me the real part of the phasor when I multiply the phasors together. 
have this unintended term. Okay, so what that means is, let me write it like that. When I'm multiplying fields, I have to step back if I've been using phasers and ask, can I multiply these phasers? Do I need to do something different? And we're going to be dealing with lots of field multiplication when we do, uh, when we calculate irradiances. Okay, so when we have two functions that we multiply together, if we want to take their time average, and that's what this angle bracket notation represents, that means the time average, what that should be is it should be the product of the two functions averaged, meaning we have to integrate for some length of time and then average over that time, so divide by how long we integrated. And I should probably make this more general. I could integrate from little t to little t plus capital T to get a time average that is allowed to change slowly over time. Um, but this is what my time average should look like. And I can show that that's actually equal to half the real part of A times B complex conjugate. Or if you like, B times A complex conjugate. So there is a way to use phasers to calculate a time average. But we can't just do it by multiplying them together and then averaging them. Okay, so let's look at how we do that. Um, let's look at this expression for the time average. This is just what I wrote in the last slide. And we'll use the trig identity here for the product of two trigonometric, two, well, two cosine functions to write this product as the sum of two cosine functions. And that lets me write this this term inside the integral as uh, the amplitude, I get a factor of one half coming from this, this identity. And then I get uh, cosine of the sum of the arguments plus cosine of the difference of the arguments. So the sum of these two arguments, if each of them is oscillating at an optical frequency omega, the sum of those arguments is going to oscillate at twice omega. The difference, the omegas are going to cancel out. So this term right here, if omega is an optical frequency, this is some term that's oscillating at twice the optical frequency. This is some term that's basically static. If alpha and beta are not functions of time, they're constant, then this is a static DC term. If these are functions of time, if they're varying slowly, slowly compared to an optical frequency, this is still essentially static over one optical cycle. Right, so when we want to do this integral over a time that's long compared to an optical cycle, but short compared to anything else, um, we can assume that when we integrate something that's oscillating rapidly over many cycles that it averages out to zero. 
so when we average it, we're just averaging constants. Right? So it doesn't change. So integrating for t and then dividing by t has no effect. This term is the only term that survives. So we have our ab over 2, our, our amplitude factor, times this term. That's our time average. And now we can write this cosine here as a phasor. So e to the i, alpha minus beta. The real part of e to the i, alpha minus beta is this cosine. And I can write e to the i, alpha minus beta. I can insert a plus omega t and a minus omega t if I want. So I can add omega t and subtract omega t from the argument. And if I take the plus omega t and I group it with the alpha, and the minus omega t, and I group it with the minus beta, and I can separate those two parts as two different exponentials. This, e to the i, omega t plus alpha, times a, is just the phasor that represents my function a, function a of t. It's just this quantity right there. And so I can write, I can take this a here and this, and I can write that as the phasor a. And likewise, this factor right here is e to the minus i omega t plus beta. So it's not e to the plus i omega t e to the plus i omega t times b would be the phasor b. Um, but because I don't have plus i, I have minus i, b times this factor isn't the phasor b, it's the complex conjugate of it. So I have b star. And the one half stays out in front. And my time average that I started with, time average of function a of t times b of t, can be expressed as one half the real part of phasor a times the complex conjugate of phasor b. Okay, and I could, this entire expression is symmetric in a and b, so I could swap them and show that I could also write this as a star times b. So we'll use that result when calculating the irradiance of a field. Okay, so let's do an example. Let's consider an electric field in a very general sense given by uh, this expression here. So this would be the electric field at some point. That point might be the location of our photo detector or our eye. Um, so there's no spatial dependence written into this. I'm not considering it as a wave, just an oscillating field at a point. Um, it oscillates at some frequency omega with some phase and some amplitude. So it's, other than being defined at a point, it's completely general. The magnetic field is proportional to that. And the constant of proportionality I'm going to call 1 over z naught. That z naught you'll also refer referred to as eta naught, depending on the text that you use or where you see it. And 
it's also equal to square root of mu naught over epsilon naught. If you look at the relationship between the amplitude of electric and magnetic fields in a wave, and you can evaluate this because those are constants that, that we know, it works out to about 377, and the units and SI units work out to ohms. So essentially like a resistance. So Z naught is called the impedance of free space. The impedance of free space because this is for waves in free space, in vacuum. That's why we use mu naught and epsilon naught. Um, if these fields were in a material, uh, we could use the mu and epsilon for the material and get a different value here, and that would be what we call the, the impedance of the material to an optical wave. Okay, so we call it the impedance because it has units of impedance. Um, and if you remember, electric fields were measured in volts per meter. Magnetic fields are in amps per meter. So the ratio between them should be the ratio between volts and amps, right, which is, which is ohms in impedance. Okay, so given all this, um, how much power would be measured by a detector of area A at this point? What do we need to know to figure that out? So E cross H, because that gives us a pointing vector. The time average of the pointing vector gives us the, uh, the irradiance. And if we multiply the irradiance times the area, that will give us the power. Okay, so I think this is worked out on the next slide, but I'll work it out on the board so we can sort of go at a more human pace. Um, so starting with power is the irradiance times area. The irradiance is the time average of the pointing vector, or it's, well, it's the time average of the magnitude of the pointing vector, it's just it's a scalar quantity. And the pointing vector is E cross H. Okay, so putting all that together, I need E cross H time average times the area. Okay, we're in free space. Uh, I know we're in free space uh, because I'm using the impedance of free space. It wasn't explicitly stated, but okay, so I'm in free space. Electric electromagnetic waves are transverse waves um, in free space, and as a result, E and H, what do we know about their cross products? What do we know about the orientation of these vectors to each other? They're orthogonal. If they're in a, we didn't, we haven't derived this, but uh, you probably saw this in 210 or electricity and magnetism. So E and H are orthogonal uh, for a traveling wave in free space. So this cross product, um, we only care about the magnitude, since we only care about the magnitude of the pointing vector. So the magnitude of that is E times H. And I have expressions in phasor form for both of those. So the functional form, when I time average it, looks like this. The phasor form we just derived looks like 
that. And that's what I'm given. I'm given phasers. I didn't draw this building over the quantities, but they're complex. They're clearly phasers. So let me just plug in those values. I want the complex conjugate of H. So I change the sign on the I to a minus. And then I can group my uh, amplitude factors and the argument to the exponent. So the arguments of the exponent are 0. There's a plus omega t and a minus omega t, a plus phi and a minus phi. So they all add up to 0, meaning e to the 0 is just 1. So the real part of that is just going to be e naught squared over z naught. That is my time average for the electric field times the magnetic field. So I can write my result. Like that. Uh, well you still have to you still have to do it. You can get you can get points, but okay. you can you Yep, I noticed that too when I was writing it. All right, so there it is in the slides. Uh, just a little bit uh, more specific here. The power that you'd see, um, if the wave is, what we derived here is for the wave propagating orthogonal to your surface. So if you orient your detector towards the wave, this is the power you'd see. Of course, if the wave is propagating this way and you're, let's say this is my photodetector, if I have it mis misaligned, so it's not capturing any of the wave, we're not going to detect anything. It's the dot product of the area vector of the detector and the, the pointing vector that determine that. So it's possible that it could be less than this if you hadn't oriented your detector properly. Um, so this form is analogous to v squared over 2r, right, which probably looks familiar from circuits. That's the average power dissipated in an AC circuit. This is the average power delivered by an AC wave. So they're completely analogous. Um, if you recognize this term eta or z as the impedance of a transmission line, you might have heard of 50 ohm BNC cable, 75 ohm antenna wire, things like that. It's a characteristic impedance of a transmission line. And if you study electrical engineering, you'll do lots of, or you may do lots of work on transmission lines and find that all the equations that govern how light goes from one material to another are completely analogous to how a, an RF wave goes from one transmission line to another.
Okay, so that sort of wraps up sort of the third part of what we're doing today. The last thing we're going to do is look at the wave equation again. So again, starting with Maxwell's equation, we're going to derive the wave equation. We did that last time. We did it in an isotropic material. So let's start by looking at what we did last time. It's just a reminder, and then we'll look at what's different if we consider the material. Okay, so we started with Faraday's law. And we took the curl of both sides, right, which is here. We moved the uh, curl operator inside the time derivative. And we recognized the curl of B as Mu, not, mu epsilon de dt. Plug that in on the right. On the left side, we used a vector identity to write that like this. And we recognized the divergence of E from Gauss's law and said, oh, if there's no charges, that's zero. And if that's zero, then what we're left with is this is the Laplacian image equals the time derivative of this term. That was our wave equation. Okay, so what's different in a material? Let's start with uh, this form, right? That was right here. We got to this intermediate step. And now let's look at that a little more closely. Um, in a material, we wrote Gauss's law as the divergence of D equals rho. And if our material is charge-free, that's equal to zero. The divergence of D is equal to zero. Okay, in free space, where D is proportional to where D is proportional to E, if the divergence of D is zero, the divergence of E is zero. However, if we're not in free space, that's not necessarily the case. Okay, so to be specific, the divergence of D, we can, we can write that as the divergence of epsilon times E. We can use a uh, vector calc identity, which is basically the uh, product rule for differentiation to say that this is equal to epsilon times the divergence of E plus E times the divergence of epsilon. That's written here. So while the divergence of D is zero, that doesn't imply that the divergence of E is zero if this term is non-zero. And in fact, that's not the case. This term is, is not zero in an anisotropic material. Okay, so if that's the case, there's really no value in, in using the vector identity that get, got us here. Right? The, the purpose of going from this form of the left-hand side of the, the wave equation to this form was that we could simplify this form by setting this equal to zero. But if we can't do that, if this actually has two terms to it, 
then we've turned a single term into three terms and simplified it. And so rather than do that, let's just leave the left-hand side of the equation in this form. Right there. And this is a wave equation. This is the wave equation that's, that holds in anisotropic materials. And if we're dealing with phases, we said that time derivatives you could treat as multiplying by i omega. And the vector, whatever you want to call it, uh, we could treat as i times the k vector. Okay, so we have a cross e plus i omega squared times mu epsilon. So we have an i squared on, in both terms. Let's pull that out. And we have this alternative form of the wave equation. It's the same as this. It's just written in a form that's going to be easier to use when we're dealing with phasers. Uh, is there a negative sign? Well, there's a negative sign on both sides, on both, both terms. Okay, so um, it's not as simple as what we had in isotropic materials. And so we're going to deal with much more cumbersome expressions. Um, but that's the cost of being able to do interesting things with light going through these materials. Um, okay, let's look at some of these terms. Uh, let's say we have a wave propagating along k. So k is the direction of propagation. And it's the wave vector. So let me draw it to the right. Then um, the electric field is perpendicular to that. Right? The electric field is transverse to the direction of propagation. k cross e is mutually perpendicular to both of those. And then k cross k cross e, the red vector crossed with the magenta vector, then is going to be mutually perpendicular to these two, meaning it's going to be in the same direction as, as the original electric field, okay. equal and opposite direction. So k cross k cross e opposes the electric field, and that's what this expression says. k cross k cross e plus some constant times the electric field is equal to zero. So the electric field and k cross k cross e are in opposite directions. However, the electric displacement vector d is related to the electric field by epsilon. In, in an anisotropic material, we said epsilon is not just a scalar, it's a 3 by 3 tensor, and it's not just going to scale the length of the vector, it's going to rotate it as well. So there's going to be some rotation between d and e that depends on epsilon. And Epsilon e 
is D. So if this term on the left side has to be the opposite direction as D, then it's not pointing straight down in this diagram. It's not pointing opposite E, it's pointing opposite D. And if K cross K cross E is not in the direction we said it was, then K must not be in the direction we said it was. Okay, so what that means is, in an anisotropic material, K is not orthogonal to E. That was our starting assumption. When I started drawing the diagram, I said, okay, let's have a wave propagating to the right, and we'll say E is transverse to that. So that assumption's wrong. Or at least it's, it's uh, only valid in specific cases. In a general sense, K is not orthogonal to E. K is orthogonal to D, the electric displacement. Oh, well, here it's, it's anti-parallel to, so mu and omega are constants, okay? Epsilon times E, so E is a vector. When it multiplies by epsilon, it rotates, and that's, it rotates into D. So D, this orange vector, represents the direction of this term. Right. Okay. The first term has to be opposite direction to this one so that they add up to zero. So this is a vector, this is a vector. They have to have equal length and opposite directions to add up to zero. And so k cross k cross e has to turn this way. And that means that k also, I mean, essentially we're rotating our k, k cross e, and k cross k cross e triad about this axis. Okay, so the picture I drew before was not accurate. It was based on a faulty assumption. This is actually what happens. The, the k vector is orthogonal to d. The pointing vector, s, is orthogonal to e. Okay, the direction of power flow, which is given by s, is orthogonal to e. And that would be along this axis here. But the direction of the wave fronts which is defined by k. k is a vector that's orthogonal to the wave fronts, the, the surfaces of constant phase, is not in the same direction that power flows. So what we have is waves that are moving in one direction but are sheared. So you can think of it as, uh, say my hands represent the planes of a wave, an isotropic material, they're gonna propagate like this, and an anisotropic material, they're gonna propagate like this. Power is going one way, but the, the wave fronts are pointing in a different direction. Okay, and we'll, we'll try to explain physically what can cause that in, in more, yeah, more intuitive terms and just this mathematical description next time. Uh, but this is just the mathematical foundation for that. Um, that's related to biorefringence. When you looked at the calcite, you saw two images of the light going through. And that's because it was birefringent, the different polarizations traveled at different speeds. Um, but it was more than that. Uh, it was birefringent and it was cut at such an angle that the, the rays were going in different directions depending on their polarization. 
and, uh, and we'll uncover all of that in great detail in the next week or so. Okay, so let's look at sort of our uh, most common sort of generator of waves. Um, if you think of waves as maybe plane waves traveling through space, that's, that's one solution to the wave equation in free space. Another solution is spherical wavelets. And in fact, we often describe plane waves as a superposition of a bunch of spherical wavelets. And uh, Huygens' formalism basically says uh, diffraction and any sort of evolution of a wavefront can be considered by a bunch of spherical wavelets all interfering. So without going into the details of, of why we are interested in spherical waves, we'll just say, well, we expect that a little point source is going to produce a spherical wave. It certainly does that in free space. Um, here's the wave equation in free space. Here's a spherical wave. Right? It is propagating radially outward. It has an amplitude that's decreasing as a function of distance. Therefore, its power is going to decrease with distance squared, or its intensity, irradiance, is going to decrease with distance squared, just as the area that it encloses increases as distance squared. So the total power is going to be contained. So that explains this 1 over r in the prefactor. OK, so if we want to uh, evaluate the wave equation on a spherical wave, we should use spherical coordinates. And for a spherically symmetric function, the Laplacian only has the, the term that depends on the, the radial derivative of the function. That looks like this. So you can look that up in a vector calc textbook. And if we plug in our function for psi, multiply by r, that cancels this, take two derivatives, that brings two factors of ik out front, and then we divide it by r, that returns us to our original function. We get something that's proportional to the right-hand side. Okay, so here's the full expression for, in effect, the divergence in radial coordinates. And we want to consider that because if this is a solution, then we can look at Gauss's law, which says the divergence of that solution should be zero in free space. So here's an expression for the divergence. Just like for the Laplacian, we don't care about terms that depend on orientation the spherical wave. Um, it only has a radial dependence, so we only the only term that will survive is this radial term. We take the derivative of our function with respect to angle. It's going to be 0 since it's radially symmetric. Okay, so with this form of the derivative, we can write that as the radial derivative of the radial function plus 2 over r times the radial function. That's another vector calc identity. Yeah, it is just the product rule. So the only way that can be satisfied, what we're saying is this right side has to be zero. 
Uh, the left side has a term that depends on um, the radial electric field, how far away it is, and a term that depends on the derivative of the radial electric field. Well, in order for both of those to add up to zero, and for it to be independent of how far away you are, the only way that can be satisfied is with the trivial solution where the electric field is zero in the radial direction. Okay, so the electric field has to be zero in the radial direction in order to have the spherical wave. That's saying the wave is transverse. It doesn't have an electric field component in the direction that it's propagating. Well, that's true in free space. But in a material, we'd expect that if the wave is propagating outwards, its D field is perpendicular, and its electric field does have a component in the direction of propagation. And therefore, the spherical solution is not a solution in an anisotropic material. Okay, so spherical waves don't propagate in anisotropic materials. So the spherical wave, it's the basis for how we think about diffraction, how we think about waves propagating for a lot of things. It's one of the simplest solutions. A point source emanates in a spherical wave. That doesn't happen inside of a, of a crystal, which at first might seem earth-shattering. Um, it's not. I mean, if you think about a crystal, it has different optical properties in different directions. That's what anisotropic means. So its main optical properties, its index of refraction, how fast the light goes. It goes faster in one direction than in another. And as a result, the light doesn't propagate spherically outward. It propagates more like a football or an ellipse. Right? The directions where it goes faster, it spreads out faster. The directions where it goes slower, it spreads out slower, and you get some elliptical surface for the wavefront. Okay, um, we can say that mathematically by reminding ourselves that the wave equation in isotropic materials gave us k squared equals to mu, mu epsilon omega squared. Um, we know that 1 over the square root of mu epsilon is, well, we can write this as k squared over omega squared. k is 2 pi over the wavelength, omega is 2 pi over the period. So k squared over omega, or k over omega gives us lambda over t. And that's 1 over square root of mu epsilon. Uh, omega over k. Uh, that is omega over k. Yeah. Thank you. So that's omega over k. So we're rearranging this for omega over k. Same thing as lambda over t. This is how far light propagates in one cycle. This is how long it takes it to do it. So that's its velocity. The velocity is 1 over the square root of mu epsilon. So the index of refraction be the speed in free space divided by the speed in the material. So in free space, the speed is 1 over the square root of mu naught, epsilon naught. In the material, it's 1 over the square root of mu epsilon. So we get this ratio. Um, I said that mu and mu naught, for our purposes, are the same. So the index of refraction is just the square root of epsilon over epsilon naught. If epsilon 
the material properties are different in different directions, the index of refraction will be different in different directions. Oh yeah, I don't know why that's, yeah. Software wanted it centered. Okay, um, that's where we're going to stop. And next time we will uh, probably do a little bit of what was left in these slides, but the bulk of Monday's uh, discussion will be on chapter six.